let's start. Um, <laughs> I don't even have a poem prepared. That's how. Um, that's how ready I am for. Um, but let's start. Um, I'd like to start. We always start with prayers anyway, but um, I feel an earnestness about them because of all that we've gone through. So, any prayers from any of you? Um, I can't believe this. Tracy, we've got a prayer for you. I've, no prayers? No prayer requests? Tracy, you just um, underwent some medical procedure surgery, yeah? Without going into details, no? No. What was it? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've recovered, yeah? Sort of. Yeah, mostly. Yeah, mostly. Okay. Let's 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 start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Can you guys hear me okay? Is the volume up all right? Okay, okay. Um goodness. Um Father, Christ, Spirit, um watch over all of us. Um COVID wasn't enough. We had this ordeal with the weather and Lots of people suffered and um, and were weakened and um, still recovering. Um, people are struggling with COVID and it's a tough time. Um, um, answer the prayers in our hearts, all of us, please, and let um, the fact that this group is one in prayer <laughs> give a greater weight to our prayers. Um, there's a soul in groups, a spirit, and um, the soul of this group is a good one, so hear our prayers, please watch over um, all of us and our families, those we love, and uh, more particularly those um, um, who need our prayers, who are struggling in their lives um, with one thing or another, and now most especially from this weather, um, um, I want to offer special thanks for all the groups, the, the neighbors and groups and organizations that offered to help, um, that opened their doors, um, provided food, transportation, um, goodness. Um, help our church to open its doors to the poor. Um, um, we live in an affluent community. Um, we're more fortunate than a lot, so um, help us always to keep our hearts open where there are needs and respond to them. Thank you. Um, I'd like um, a special prayer, all of you. I'm, I'm not sure that I made this, I made you all aware of this. Um, we got a letter from Nikki. She's been out of the group now for probably a couple months. And she's been, a, she's not missed weeks for years now. Um, but she um, was diagnosed with cancer. She just went through a procedure and she's doing well. And I think it was stage two. So they caught it early and she's doing well. She's gonna start chemo. But I know she's um, been struggling I mean, for the last several months. So pray for her please, um, earnestly. Um, she's been present to 
our meetings for years, so not to have her here is um, a big lack. Um, and watch over all those in our families, that, um, particularly those that um, struggles. Um, Tracy's recovery from COVID. Yeah. Um, she's quiet. Watch over Tracy. Um, help her to recover her strength and her health. She doesn't lack anything in spirit. She's here. <laughs> Bless her. Bless you, Tracy. Um, watch over all of us. Um, help us in everything we do to keep giving our wills to you. Um, um, here in Lent, I ask a special blessing on all of us that we um, that we do all that we can to be with Christ in the desert, to make serious renunciations, to give up things, particularly those things we want, but also those things of the Spirit, things harder to get to. Let us all, my image of, of Lent, I think you all know this, is all of us going up purgatory together. I'm always glad to be in your company to do this. It always helps to have company when you're going up a mountain. So strengthen all of us in our efforts to put ourselves away, to to take on serious disciplines with those weaknesses that we all have, and help us to take some comfort and inspiration from the fact that we do it together. Um, and let your blessing be upon um, all that we do this night. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Hey, Bob, have you heard from Marcy? Yeah, Who, was that Tracy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Marcy, I, 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 she may even be online. I think she's, she's I don't know what to call this, um, I think she's present. I don't think she's going to actively get back. I'm trying to get her back, but um, but she's well, she's. I understand. I, I, you know, I just. Uh, Who's that? Is anybody there? I'm not sure, Debbie. It um, looks like you're on, so um, I'm glad to see you. I hope I hope we get a picture of you, and I hope you and Bruce. Um, managed okay with this ordeal that we just came out of so let's start let's start I want to just quickly hi Debbie there you are um, just a couple general things that we touched on last week I think they're going to get deeper the the, the things that I'm touching on are going to take on a greater depth as we move through the play, but a couple of things. One of them is, you know that Shakespeare was writing after the Copernican Revolution and the Reformation, and he was, I just think, he, he had to be one of the brightest men who's ever lived. Genius, to me, doesn't quite um, fit um, him, but um, but he had this extraordinary gift of language, and he, he had to be extraordinarily sensitive um, for him to do what he did in all those plays, but um, it, it's clear from his plays that he was very aware that we were on the edge of a different world. Um, so, and he's living at a time when Catholics are persecuted, and it's almost not safe to take a political position that isn't politically correct. It reminds me a lot of our age. Um, it's interesting that 
he, he almost r rarely um, explicitly puts anything forward in Christian terms, but I don't think his plays can be more Christian than they are. A, a, um, a really selfless kind of love informs all the good characters, the major characters. Um, but he's writing at a time when, um, when it's not safe to take a position that's in conflict with the throne of the Protestant world in England then. So it's interesting to me that he, he chose to do a play on Lear when Lear is one of the first English kings. He, he lived about the 8th century BC, about the, the time, I think, of uh, not... Uh, Who's the great prophet? Isaiah. Um, and during the um, when Rome was founded. So he's gone back into ancient times and he's looking at a, 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 a pre-Christian world by centuries. And yet it seems to me at the heart of this play he's showing a Christian love at work. We've encountered this before when we did Anthony and Cleopatra. Remember, we went through it and it seemed... It, see, I'm, I'm really convinced about this, that what he's doing in Anthony and Cleopatra is going back to them not only because he completes his work on Rome, because he did the three plays on Rome, Jews, Caesar, Anthony, and Cleopatra, and, and Coriolanus. He's, he's presenting Anthony and Cleopatra that makes us aware that something's coming into that Roman world the Romans don't know about. I think it's, 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 it's almost impossible to read the ending of, ending of Anthony and Cleopatra and not be aware that something's happening that the Romans don't see. And it's the same here. He's in a pagan world that's centuries away from Christianity, and yet um, the tensions between those characters who are um, really completely self-serving and those who are selfless and serving is it's pretty stark. Um, it gives a real edge um, and depth to the drama, I think. Um, I made the point last time, again, it's one that I've made a number of times before, that all great poetry is um, written, the very greatest poetry is written at the time when a civilization is reaching its apex and it's about to collapse. A way of being is, be, is being lost. Um, just to give you some examples, you, you know them right now because of the work we've done together. Um, um, troubadour poetry, the poetry, um, Don, wow, good to see you, whoa, get a glass, there's a wasp flying around my desk right here, um, troubadour poetry, Dante wrote out of a new troubadour tradition and wrote an epic, um, right at a time when the old medieval world was passing and this new world, what we called a commercial republic, was emerging. Holy cow. Um, think about Michelangelo, the, we talked the Commedia, um, the Philippines, Ireland in the, um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Ireland underwent an Irish revolution. Produced James Joyce, Singh, Yeats, all of those great poets in the early 20th century. Um, in England, it produced um, what we know as the, uh, what's the, uh, the inkling. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Dorothy Sayers, a number of just great writers because they were men trying to hold on to a Christian worldview when that view was disappearing. 
um, um, they they were following up. Here, Doc, I'll, if I see it again, I'll get it. There he is. Where? Up there on top of that. Here. I'm just going to leave him? Yeah, for now. Okay. Um, where was I? The, the, um, the Tractarian movement had taken place 50 years before. It was an effort to try to um, recover a spirit of holiness that the Church of England had lost. Um, England continued to become more progressive, more secular. So by the time that um, these men and Dorothy Sayers, the woman, the one woman among them, were writing, um, they were writing in a world that was really for all purposes, um, a Christian world was gone. The same thing happened with the fugitives, the group of Southerners in the South when the South lost the Civil War. Out of that, out of that disaster or that radical change came the fugitive, Faulkner, Alan Tate, Donald Davidson, Ransom, a whole group of some of the best critics um, in the 20th century and some of the best writers. I think Faulkner and Tolkien are the, the best two writers of the 20th century. So um, something happens to the consciousness of, of people when they're losing an old traditional way of life and they're facing a way um, <coughs> that they aren't prepared for. <coughs> We encountered it. I mean, you you you've experienced this firsthand. We encountered it in Dostoevsky. You all wouldn't know this more than lots of people. You read Dostoevsky, and you know that he's right. I mean, what make what gives that book? It's the Brothers Karamazov. It's it's cutting edge in its intensity. <coughs> Sorry, is that old Mother Russia is dying? Um, a secular scientific worldview is replacing it. And everybody's suffering from dislocations. It produces Ivan, Dmitri, um, Alyosha, <clears throat> Father Zosima is on the cutting edge. He's dying to that world. He's, and he's, remember we talked about how that old way is fading. And it created something new in Fyodor, Fyodor Karmazov. Because remember I talked about that comic um, man, or, uh, way of dealing with things. He had to try to create a persona because he didn't know how to act. The norms are gone. When that traditional way goes, what do people do? How do they measure their actions? What's right or wrong? Um, they, they can put on a facade and become moral, but something of our ground is shattered, shaken. Shakespeare's writing at that time, and in King Lear, he happens to be going back to eight centuries before Christianity, and, um, and he produced in some respects, one of his great, certainly one of the greatest plays. I think it's probably the greatest tragedy. It's certainly the most painful. So why did he do that? Why did he do that? We have to come back to that. So um, um, I reminded everybody about the tragic paradigm. Aristotle said that um, um, the tragedy gives us a greater wisdom than history um, because tragedy can deal with um, more probable truths. It's more philosophic. It gives a higher kind of wisdom. So what is the wisdom of King Lear? What is it that Lear, that Shakespeare's giving us in Lear? One last thing um, in this sort of general review of the 
role of poetry and what poetry is doing. There are some critics who say that um, tragedy is just a comedy with a wise man absent. It's the absence of a wise man. I don't believe that for a moment. I, I think that kind of thinking comes out of an armchair. It's an armchair comfort. I don't think that's what tragedy is. Real, you saw that from uh, Oedipus. Um, it's, it's, tragedy isn't an action that lacks a wise man like Socrates. I think a tragedy, what the great poets are showing us, is that there's an evil or a wrong to the world, but there's some good answering. That's Boethius. That evil's real, and the presence, the presence of a wise man is not going to rescue people. People are going to suffer from evil. That's just a fact. Um, we know that in our daily lives. Evil's all around us. So I don't think tragedy is simply comedy um, without the presence of a wise man. That's too platonic. There are real evils in the world. In the ancient world, the wrong in a tragedy was called a hemartia, a fault, a flaw. That's what Aristotle would have called um, Oedipus's fault, a flaw. We know that Oedipus didn't choose to do anything bad. It was just a flaw in his intellect. Too much pride, far too much pride. And very wise, very smart, not wise. In a Christian world, it's not just a flaw that a man's not aware of, it's a sin. So in Shakespeare's tragedy, and he writes them from the perspective of, of a Christian worldview, um, we're, 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 we're invited into a world in which we, evil is at work. The stupid things people do, the evil that they do, and the effects of their actions on other people. Um, Macbeth was a Christian who was recently baptized. Hamlet, Christian. Othello, Christian. All of them tragic heroes. All of them dealing with um, spiritual evils. The same is true in Lear, except in Lear we're going back eight centuries before Christ. So, um, I've just, I have one question before I'm going to turn to the play. Um, there are two themes that we touched on last week. One of them, um, I, I, only briefly, I think I mentioned it, um, one we took a little bit of time with. Um, one of the principal concerns of King Lear is the role of authority in the life of a community. Um, and what happens when people use that authority in self-serving ways. We've talked about um, the distinction that Plato made between conventional justice and real justice. That conventional justice is man-made and very often it serves those who are in power. So justice is determined by the stronger over the weaker. Whoever's in power decides what's just. And since men tend to be sinful and fallen, they tend to commit horrendous acts in the name of justice. So that distinction is absolutely the heart of King Lear because um, both Lear and Gloucester have power, political power, particularly Lear because he's king. And we know from the beginning of the play how he abuses it. He uses his power to buy love, as if love can be bought. And it sets in motion this awful tragedy. Um, 
So one is the role of authority and what happens when it's abused, whether people use their authority in accord with justice or at odds with justice. That's why we've been taking the, the time we have to deal with that question that C.S. Lewis raised in Abolition of Man. Is there a way, is there an order? The old world called it justice. The Bible calls it justice. God created this order, this way. To be a just man meant to be one with that way. With himself and his own nature, and that way, generally. That's what a just man was. When people have the power to make justice whatever they want, um, they, they abuse other people. They create all sorts of problems. We all know that because we live with it every day. That's one. That's one thing at the center of the play. One other that I want to t touch on, I think could be missed because it's, it's, it's present in the whole play, but it's so conspicuous you'd be looking at it all the time and not seeing it. And that is the role of intrigues in the life of modern man. And if that, if that seems too obvious, let me set up a contrast so it becomes clear. Go back and look at Chaucer, 1400s. You find almost nothing having to do with intrigues on a scale that we find it in Shakespeare. In Chaucer's world, pilgrims are going to St. Thomas' Shrine. They've got all these stories. They're loving each other. They're singing songs together. And they're going to share a meal. They are in concert, e even when they're fighting with each other. They're, they form a community um, on, in the spirit of a pilgrimage. They're going to pay homage to Thomas. You can't read a Shakespeare play without experiencing intrigues. It's impossible to read it without feeling that we're, middle, we're in the middle of a Renaissance world with castle corridors, dark rooms, dark spaces with people plotting. So Edmund's plotting um, and the result of it is that Edgar has to take on a disguise. Lear banished Kent, and Kent has to take on a disguise. He has to play a role. And if you set the two of them next to each other, you see the difference, because Ed, Edmund's doing nothing but plotting evil. He, he wants to use every means he can to get Gloucester's estate. So in Edmund, we've got a figure just like Othello, in, in, or um, Iago in Othello. He's constantly working to, to get rid of his father and even Edgar. Whereas in contrast, you've got um, Edgar putting on a disguise, and everything he's doing is trying to preserve his life and still hold on to his goodness. So if you go back to medieval Christianity, you go back to a world that was basically unreflective. Its faith was not reflective. It was just assumed. You were born Christian, you grew up Christian, you didn't think anything about it. You just accepted it. It's like anybody who grows up Christian today. How many people reflect on the nature of their faith? Okay? So in Chaucer's world, we're in a very different world. In Shakespeare's world, we have entered a world of, of intrigue in which the intellect almost takes over. It has a life of its own and its power of its own. We know this from Dante already. Shakespeare would have known Dante. Because we know that the greatest sin of man is abuse of his intellect. Fraud. Remember the levels of sin. The incontinence, the violent, and fraudulent. Those people who misuse their intellects 
And very often people misuse their intellects, intellects with good intentions. Lear intended no evil. He didn't intend evil. Edmund did. But you, you can't read this play without feeling that you're engulfed with um, intrigues, people plotting everywhere. Gloucester's pot plotting, Cornwall's plotting, Albany's pot plotting. Both Albany and Cornwall are going at each other. Cordelia's plotting. She's gathering an army to come back to help her father recover the throne. So you can't look anywhere in this play and not feel, not, not come across people who are um, in the midst of intrigues, plotting something. So we're in a different world. It's as if, it's as if traditional, traditional ways of life have been so pushed away, people have been um, uprooted. They don't have the support of those traditions anymore and it's harder um, to find a strength in them. So if we look at characters like Kent and Edgar, um, particularly, it seems to me our admiration for them grows because they're working in a world that's basically against them. They're trying to hold on to something good when the world around them is in collapse. Okay, it's in decay. Let me, let me stop here for a second. Any, any questions about just some of these general comments that I'm making and some of the things we did when we started last week before we turned to the turn to the play. What I'd like to do in a minute is just summarize the first three acts so we get through act two and three and then I'd like to go through the some of the scenes and, and look at some of these concerns that I'm raising. One of the major questions that I want to bring to you guys um, is one we touched on last week. I, I don't Sue. I, um, um, I don't see your image, but I, it, it looks like you're here. But um, it, it seemed it was one of the concerns that you had last week when you and I. I'm a little bit. Con I can't remember very well now, but I know you were puzzling over the fact that Shakespeare was going back to. Um, um, a period eight centuries before his own time, or no, so it would have been um, 24 centuries before his time, 16 and eight. Um, um, but I, it's a it's a question that I want to go back to. But can you can you recall the the question that you raised about I don't, the historicity or um, your 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 Sue? You're you're muted. I, things up. It confused me, and I, I haven't read everything that you put online, um, but so if that's in there, I apologize ahead of time. I, all of the names, the, the Gloucester, Albany, you know, all of the, the regions of England are the same regions that existed in more modern times, yeah. and so I just questioned that as I was reading it in terms of the time frame. That's all. I mean, it was just a question of references to things that were much later, I thought. And I haven't pursued that very much. It's been busier this week than I thought it would be. Yeah. That was a couple weeks ago. That's as yeah. much as I can remember from it. Yeah. 
I just want everybody to keep this question in mind because we we've, we've touched on it again and again. I mean, some of you I think were shaking your head. I think I'm, I can't remember. Mark, you may have. I remember Hamlet is a real person. Lear was a real person. Um, Hamlet lived centuries before Wittenberg was founded, and Wittenberg was the university where Luther hung up his theses, and Shakespeare sets Hamlet there. So he's not trying to be faithful to historical fact, and yet he's rooting his plays in history. Same I, thing. I think you answered that a couple weeks ago. I, yeah, I want to hold on to it because I want to get back to it here because okay. he's going much he's going back much farther in time, and in some ways it seems so much more pagan. You know, it's it's more unfamiliar, I think, than Hamlet's world. Hamlet seems in a modern world. Lear doesn't. Seems. We talked about the same thing with Anthony and Cleopatra. We could do the same thing with other plays. Why did Shakespeare go back there? Um, what's he doing? So it's a major it's a major concern. Okay. Um the play is fundamentally about the passing on um, of a life um, to those who come after. So in one sense, even though it seems to be about the passing on of a life, Lear's passing on his kingdom, he's dividing it between his daughters. It, in one sense, it's really about how a person lives his life now because what he's passing on is essentially what he's become. So one of the interesting things about the play is, is we're going to learn to see the effects of a way a man lived, even if he wasn't aware of them. He, see, he thinks he's doing a okay thing, passing his kingdom on to his daughter. The kingdom's going to collapse. What was present in, Le in Lear's world that he didn't see? What gets revealed from that act? It seems to me it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's so paradigmatic, it's so seminal our lives. We go through our lives as we approach death, we make all these preparations for death and pass things on. But I don't think any of us give much thought except how do I want what, what do I want to make of my inheritance. Or, but in one sense what's getting passed on is a whole way of life and possibly things we didn't see. That's one of the reasons why inheritance problems, wills, are traditionally so problematic. Conflicts arise all the time um, when wills are read. Families break up over them. Um, um, so to, to pick that point isn't just to show that something of an old world is being passed on to another. It's another way of saying, here's what is going on in that world that isn't being seen. And it's all going to come to the surface. Um... um one last thing to um, to reinforce this notion, this whole question of justice and man-made justice and real justice. Every one of Lear's daughters, both of Gloucester's sons, had reasons for resenting their fathers. Um, we're going to find out when Lear gets to the heath that he realizes there are things that he didn't do as a father that he didn't know before. And um, the beginning of the play makes clear to us that Edmund carries resentments with him because he's illegitimate. He has no claim on any inheritance. His older brother is going to get everything. He will get nothing. He's been away for a long time. He's not part of his father's world. So 
Every one of the children in this play have reasons for resenting the parents. And yet, um, Edgar remains without resentments. Um, and Cordelia remains faithful to Lear. And Kent never leaves him, even though Lear banishes him, threatens him with death. Edgar, or Kent, puts on a disguise and continues to serve his master, his king. So this whole question of authority and, and how it's passing on a life and the problems this king and this duke, Gloucester, present to their kids. And the play is exploring the implications of that. So at the heart of this play is this question having to do with authority and obedience or submission, serving. When people have reasons for defiance, you know, when people give other people reasons for defying them or fighting, um, what happens? I, I think it's a crucial problem and I think very often it, um, it gets buried in a democracy. I, I think we're suffering from that problem currently today because of everything that's going on. In a democracy we think because everybody's equal that nobody can tell us what to do or have anything to say about us. So we tend not to deal with questions of obedience. We don't obey anybody. We do what we want. But Shakespeare is exploring this central question. And if you got my notes today, one of the questions you know I'm asking is, is Shakespeare dealing with a, with a question that is meant to take us back to the fall, when the cause of our fall was our disobedience of the Father, that authority? You know that all, all the early church fathers wrote letters, or a good many of the church fathers wrote letters saying, you owe submission to the civil authority. The only, the only time you could not obey them, or have a basis for not obeying them, is when you were following God's law and resisting them. Otherwise, we, were, we are all asked as Christians to follow Caesar, given to Caesar what's, you know, so Shakespeare's going to these very fundamental questions, authority, obedience, justice, injustice, a good kind of love, a disordered love. Those are the themes at the center of Lear. Okay. Let me take a second for any questions or comments and then we'll we'll go to the play. Seems to me he's touching on the most important things that define our lives, even if we never look at them. How good are we at obeying, giving obedience, particularly where we say we love somebody, or, or, or obedience is, is asked, you know. No questions? Tracy, you got a question? No? Okay. Um... Let's see if I can if I can quickly. You know that what happens. I'm going to see if I can summarize the first three acts in in two minutes. You know the play begins with um, 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 Gloucester acknowledging the um, illegitimacy of Edgar, and we go from there to the Lear scene where he um, divides his kingdom down, asking his daughters to show how much they love him. Um, Cordelia can't falsify her love in because she can't um, she makes Lear furious and he banishes her 
Anne Kent. You remember that um, um, the King of France, um, in a wonderful expression of love, said that she was all the more beautiful because she didn't have, she didn't come with all these trappings. Who she was was who she was. So one of the themes that gets announced in the beginning is how much do externals, trappings, clothes, wealth, get in the way of a person being who that person really is? We, we, we tailor, we create these persona, we don't want to be disliked or we don't want to offend people or Cordelia can't do that and, and she's shunned um, and Kent can't either. He tries to persuade the king um, to take more care and, and Lear gets angry at him and banishes him. Um, I want to go to Act 1. So we go from there and in terms of the plot spatially, um, we go from there basically to uh, Cordelia's estate where she's telling a messenger to take a, um, a message to her sister, telling her sister to um, to do everything she can to make Lear feel, feel uncomfortable. Um, she doesn't want to entertain her father um, unless he gets rid of all of his retinue. He's got a hundred soldiers. She tells her sister to do everything she can to make him feel uncomfortable. Um, the, the play shifts from her house to Gloucester's house. Oswald and, and Kent, if I recall correctly, are returning from having gone to Reagan's house to give that message. She leaves because she doesn't want to be there to receive her father. So they all come to, it's an interesting shift in scene. Not a lot is said about it, but it becomes clear that she's doing everything, Reagan is doing everything can to insult her father, avoid him. So they come to Gloucester's house and it's there that Cornwall and Reagan come uh, to, uh, um, to avoid Lear and also to, um, to get, I think, Gloucester's support because um, there's some sense that something's a brew in France and we also have a sense at that time that there are tensions between Albany and, and um, Cornwall and I think Cornwall is coming there to enlist Gloucester's support to get him on his side. You know that Ed, Edmund has set the plot in motion against um, his father. He tricks his father into believing that Edgar is um, seeks his life so that he can get his inheritance sooner. When Edmund comes to Gloucester's um, house, he um, he flushes out his plot a little bit more by um, pretending that he's having a, had a fight scene with Edmund to protect his father and wounds himself. His father comes in and um, and he, he, he has more reasons to persuade his father that Edgar's a bad man, um, so the plot is thickening there. Um, when they're there, Kent um, beats up Oswald, and he's put in the stock. When Lear comes, um, he is horrified because he doesn't know this is Kent, and he sees Kent in the stocks. This is the man who has now come into his service, and nobody will pay any attention to him. And he goes to Reagan to ask her if he can come to her estate and she says no. Goneril appears again and says, Reagan says reduce, Goneril said cut back half your train. Reagan says cut that in half and um, Reagan says why have any? Why have one? 
Leary is so outraged that he leaves and goes to the Heath, and it's there that um, that that Shakespeare, in a sense, goes outside the whole political world into another world. I want to wait. I want to wait to get to that because I just think something really extraordinary is happening there. But that's the plot up to that time. Um, sometimes it can get confusing. Anybody have any questions about just the simple action from one place to another? Because I know it's not a it's not always an easy play to follow. Any questions about that? Lear divides his kingdom, he goes to Goneril, she insults him, he leaves to go to and is on the way to Reagan's, he stops by Gloucester's. Ken and Oswald are coming back from having gone to Reagan's place. Reagan is there with Cornwall to enlist Gloucester's support. It's there that um, Lear will be put off by both of his daughters and sent into a fury. And it's there that he goes out into the heath where the center of this drama takes place. I, that, um, we, we, we will touch, we'll get to that, I think, at the end of the class. But is everybody okay in that? Anybody have any questions about just the simple action from one place to another? Okay, turn to Act 1, Scene 2. Actually, I do have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, um, Good Edward, for you. Edgar was older than Edmund, so he would have inherited the property even if Edmund was legitimate, wouldn't he? No. Why? Because he was illegitimate. No. No, that's what I mean. Edgar. Edgar was the older son. I'm sorry. Edgar is older. Yeah. I'm not sure. Do we know that? Yeah. What's your question, Karen? Sorry. So, Edgar is the older son. Right. And the legitimate son. Right. Edmund, they make a big deal about he's the illegitimate son, but he wouldn't have inherited anyway because of his status as second son, would he? No. Right, you're right. I'm not sure that I'm getting your question, though. Edgar stood to gain, have everything. Um, that's going to be the question I'm going to come to right now, actually, but, um, but he would have received nothing because he was... Younger and older. I'm not sure that he was younger, but he was illegitimate anyway. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have the status of law to have anything from his father. I think at one point they said that um, Edgar had a few months on him. Sorry. I don't know. Edgar's a year older. Edgar's a year. Sorry. What's your question, Karen? Why are they making such a big deal about him illegitimate? Because he wouldn't have inherited it because of his age. He was not the first son, so he wouldn't have been eligible for his inheritance anyway. So why, 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 why is he all, why, why all the hullabaloo? I'm not sure what the question. I mean, it, the, I, if I'm understanding it, because he because he was illegitimate, he would he stood to have nothing. Correct, he's putting. But he he's was putting. The son. He wasn't the oldest son, so he wasn't going to get anything anyway. I know. So what? Yeah. So he's concocted. So what's the hullabaloo about him being a bastard then? Who cares? He wouldn't have got anything anyway. Six to one. Well, he would, well, wait, wait, hold on. If he had been legitimate, um, if he'd been a legitimate son and not an illegitimate son, he would have been in good standing and received something. His father wouldn't have cast him off. He's he's a pariah. 
He's an outcast in the, in the eyes of the world. And we're meant to feel that he feels that. What he's doing is, in a sense, taking... Here, here's the... In fact, we're going to get there. This is where we're, we're starting. Here's the problem. And it's a... Re, it's going to... I mean, this is getting me... It's, it's anticipating the present. I was just going to... The question I was just going to ask. Both sons are natural. Here's the concern. Both sons are natural. Right? They both came from a sexual union. One has the support of law and the other doesn't. So they're both natural. They're a process of nature. But one's under the protection of the law, the other isn't. Edmund's doing everything he can to get back at a world that's disenfranchised him. He had no choice in the matter. That's part of the problem here. That's why this whole question of nature, law, natural, what's natural, is so crucial. We're going to read it right now. He's doing everything he can to not be disenfranchised. He's going to set up his brother and he's going to try to do everything he can to get rid of his father. So he, he will inherit everything. So from the beginning to the end of his plot, he has the intention of taking over everything from his father. Mark, did you have something? Yes. I understand what you're saying. He just feels slighted and he's angry at the world. But I guess my question is, in this time, there's no reason for him really to be angry because it's not like he was the only bastard who got slighted. Everybody got slighted who was a bastard. That's just the way it was. Water's wet. So there's no reason for him to have, there's no other example for him to go, well, that guy got something, but I didn't, right? I mean, everybody got slighted if you if that was the case for you. So I, I just don't get where he would have gotten the idea that he's the world was unfair to him, him specifically, and for him to be angry because this is the way it was for everybody. There wasn't anything special about him. Anybody want to, go ahead, Doc. Except the fact that it makes for good drama in a Shakespeare play. Well, I think it also makes for a, a point of realism, but hold on, let's... Go ahead. I don't know that he's feeling like he's standing out somewhere in the world being more ill-treated than everybody else. Um, the, as you said, that's just the way it was. The fact of the matter is, his father had all this wealth, his brother was going to inherit it all, and he was going to get nothing, and that mm -hmm. just... It, that didn't sit well with him. He wanted it. So it was it was envy, as much as anger. Um, I don't think he was making the point that he was being more ill-treated than anybody else in the world. I'd like to just turn that. I mean, to just follow up Suzanne's, but turn it the other way in your own terms, Mark. The fact that everybody else did it was not a reason for Edmund not feeling resentful. Everybody else might have done it, but I, I, I mean, that's never a reason for any of us not doing things. But it, it, so that in itself is not, it doesn't explain away or say, why is he getting all worked up? Because the fact that it happens to everybody else doesn't keep any of us from getting angry when something happens to us. But in his particular case, the reasons were even greater because he had a wealthy father and, he, and the contrast between what he was going to get and his brother was going to get was great. So um, by no act of his own, he's put in a place which in terms of justice or equity couldn't be more unjust. One of the one of the problems. There's no example of equity. Wait, wait, Mark, Mark, hold on. Hold Mark, Mark, hold on. Let me just finish. 
one of the one of the questions one of the questions that Shakespeare's dealing with is this, and I think he's doing it very seriously. Um, go back to my terms a minute ago. Both men were the product of natural birth. They're a product of nature. One of them has the okay, let me let me go to I was gonna put this up. There's a question here about the relationship between nature and law. Let me put it this way. Um, I don't. It may be anticipating or putting off your question. If, it, if it's not picking up your question mark, come come back and ask what you're asking. But here's the question. Um, both men are natural. One has the protection of law. One doesn't. Why is law important in this matter? And is there something the law isn't dealing with that Ed, that Shakespeare is using Ed Edmund or Edgar Edmund to show? Because we're 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 getting in the in the soul of a man who's an outcast in society by no act of his own. So let me repeat that again. Both men are natural. One has the protection of the law, the other doesn't. It doesn't matter what happens to everybody else. This one man. Um, is one man is being given something and they're not. Um, what's the importance of law in marriage? Why is, it in, why is it important? And what does it mean not to have it? Should somebody who had no choice in his birth, who's illegitimate, have to suffer because he doesn't have the protection of the law? Shakespeare's exploring a really universal question. It's, it's, it's current today, it was current then. So, or, Sue, go ahead. Did you have? Sue, your 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 sound's not on. Sorry, uh, I'm listening to this, and let me put it another way. Why did Shakespeare feel it necessary to emphasize the illegitimacy instead of being younger? Because he's interested in what the law does. Yeah, it, your birth order is beyond anybody you know the first son always inherits yeah but he doesn't but he becomes a knight but the first son always inherits yeah but the issue here isn't it's not just that in a family particularly say a family like Lear's or um, Gloucester's in a family the first son would have inherited everything but the rest of the family would not have been dismissed they would have had some wait 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 because it goes to this question of law but he but they would have had the protection of his law Edgar has all of that. Edmund does not. He's illegitimate. So the question that Shakespeare's dealing with here is, what's the relationship of law to nature? Let me, I mean, I, I, I hope this is going to your question. What does law do to protect us? Why is it important, this whole question of justice? And what seems to be an injustice here, because Edmund's saying, I, I had no choice in this. Why, sh why, sh why this inequality here? Um, everybody in a family would have received something. If you're illegitimate, you're outside the protections of the law then. But, but he had already been welcomed by Gloucester in his household. He had been acknowledged by him. He didn't have to be, do that. So he had, and, and yet, I don't know, why did Shakespeare, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying about law, but he had already achieved some of the status that he would have achieved or that he had lost by the law. Let, let me read this passage because I'm not I want to I want to I want to hold on to this question for a minute because the illegitimacy 
Illegitimate means not lawful. Edmund's a product of an unlawful relationship. Edgar's not. What difference does that make? So my question, the one that I'm raising here, is what is law meant to do for human beings? Why is it there? Why is it necessary? Um, is, there, is there something here in the play to which the law doesn't address itself that's important? Because here is a man who's brought into the world who had no choice in what happened, and he's going to be discriminated from the... It's a little bit like Calvin. I mean, this, that's a dark contrast, but it's like somebody coming into the world who learned they're going to be damned. This guy is growing up aware of that. Here, let's read it. Can we go Act 1, Scene 2? Very opening. What is Edmund saying here that goes directly to this question? That's a central question of the play. Edmund, thou nature, thou nature art my goddess. To thy law my services are bound. To thy law my services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom, the plague of custom, and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me, for that I am some twelve or fourteen months moonshine's lag of a brother? Why bastard? Wherefore base, when my dimensions are just as well compact, my mind as generous and my shape as true, as honest madam's bait? Let me try to exaggerate. I'm going to go back to Calvin again. If you were born into a world and somebody informed you that you were damned when you began, what would that do to your mentality? Edward's grown up in a world in which people say base, um, bastard, my mind's as generous, my shape as true, as honest madam's issue, why brand they us with base? What, what baseness? Bastardly base base? Who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull, stale, tired bed go to the creeping whole, a whole tribe of fops got between asleep and wake? Well then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. Our father's love is to the bastard Edmund as to the legitimate. Fine word, legitimate, lawful. Well, my legitimate, if this letter speed and my invention thrive, Edmund the base shall top the legitimate, I grow prosper, now God stand up for bastards. My question to everybody here is, why is law important for a world? I mean, I'm, that's a, such a, it's a sixth grade question, but I'm asking it. Because the next question I want to ask is, is there something that the law doesn't cover? How do we understand that? It, because Edmund's outside that. If somebody had an illegitimate child... He's not outside the law. He's 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 in the law, and he just doesn't like it. He's outside the law. That's that's what illegitimate means. He is not lawful. What does what's the importance to keep him from inheriting? That's that's well within the law. He's just he's just upset and whining about it and doesn't like it. Fred, go ahead. Your your audio's not on. Or Fred, go ahead. Debbie, if you can hold on for a second. The answer to your question is law is only intended to provide order. Nothing more, nothing less. If you look at the Old Testament versus the New Testament, the Old Testament was the law was there to provide order. And that order doesn't necessarily provide justice for all. Without can, order, you have chaos. Yeah. And that's what the law is for, and that's what's missing here, is what was defined for order 
doesn't necessarily provide justice for all. Can you relate that specifically to the story here, to, as particularly in, sure, in the, the context the law, of this? The law says you have to be legitimate, legal, in order to benefit from the, the passing of wealth from one generation to the next. So by definition, for that reason, uh, Edwin was, was, or Edgar was uh, left out of the, left out of the loop. Edmund. And what he's what he's really saying here is that order isn't the law. Order isn't enough because it doesn't cover situations like mine, where through no fault of my own, I'm out on the street. Debbie, go ahead. Fred took all the words out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was going to say. Is that all it is? Is it's it provides society with some order, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always fair, um, but it does provide it does provide order. Yeah. And and as a society, those were the rules that they agreed to operate under. So, but he as as Mark was saying, he just didn't like it, and I understand why he didn't like it because it. Um, uh, disadvantaged him and yet um, I can't remember I guess it was Sue who said he um, uh, he he was welcomed into the household he was you know he was had all those opportunities that that normally normally someone who was illegitimate probably would not have they would have been out on the street someplace but having seen all of the things all the accoutrements of wealth um, he didn't want to give that up and if his brother was was um, uh, provided all of the financial opportunities, there was no security for him. His dad loved him, even though he was illegitimate. Um, but mm, his brother, maybe not so much. So, yeah. but Fred, I, what Fred said is exactly what I was going to say: is that it provides order. That's what it does. Yeah, Tracy, go ahead. I agree with you guys, and I think that if I put myself in his shoes, I'm, I'm reading this stuff about how it's imprinted in our hearts by God to love and be loved. And, um, you know, if I believe that's true, and so to be called a bastard or base all your life, and I mean, in the first scene, the very first page of the play, you know, he's the his father says in his presence that he's been embarrassed I guess to acknowledge him all this time mm -hmm. and so if you're hearing that all the time then you're you know that that imprint on your heart is constantly denied and so your dignity as a human being is denied and that's you know yeah yeah here let me if I can if I can step back a moment from love to take on just justice again because um, there are two there are two important traditional strains, um, strains of traditions dealing with law. One is plate platonic, um, and if you remember from what we did with Dante, you know that that was the principal one through the whole Middle Ages. The understanding of law um, for a community that was um, the dominant one during the Middle Ages was platonic, and the position it took is, is this, laws are punitive. You don't do this or you're punished. 
So laws are, are a curb against a sinful, a sinful inclination. Do not do this. You have to do this. Aristotle turned that on its head because he said the aim of laws was not just control of society. I mean, it's interesting to hear you guys are, are sort of pushing a theory that came into existence in the 16th century called social contract theory to bring order. You know, we make all these compromises. Plato said the function of law was to curb um, unlawful desires. I mean, one of the questions that I would have gone on to ask a minute ago is, take laws away, what do we have? And you can say chaos, but it seems to me in terms of the play, it's not chaos, it's sexual promiscuity. The sexual drive is one of the most basic for human beings. Take laws away, what are people going to do sexually? Laws, I mean, marriage is a lawful act. It come, marriage means coming under a law. Once you marry somebody, you're not supposed to have sex with somebody else. That's a law. You can't do something. Take laws away and, and um, society will go to hell. Um, Plato's theory of law was that they were punitive. They, they punished in order to keep people good because people are inherently bad. If they're left alone, they'll do bad things. Aristotle said, no, the aim of the law is the good, that the laws are meant to encourage you to attain your own good. It's like curb set up, so you can help become the best person you can. Um, the, but to get back to the issue here, the, um, I mean, people can say, take whatever position they want, you know, that just because everybody does it, or has to suffer from this, isn't a reason for everybody having to do it. Circumstances are different, sensibilities different. I think Tracy's point is, is well taken. I, I would like to just put it at a position of justice before because right now in the play we're not we're only indirectly dealing with love because love doesn't become an issue except in an indirect way in the open in the opening scene with Lear when he says, Show me how much you love me and he wants to buy them off. But justice, as his point is, if you, if you are brought into the world simply as a matter of justice and one person is given more when you're handsome and good-looking and have no reason for not getting... Justice means giving each person his due. If every person is a product of nature, then why should one person be disadvantaged over another at the level of nature? One of the major themes running through this whole place is what it means what nature means. Why should one man have everything when he comes into the world and another man not? Is that just? Is that fair? And you can say, well, stop whining about it because that's the way it is, but that's another way of saying be unjust. I mean, one of the difficulties I have with your position, Mark, is it's as if you're saying everybody's going to do it, so be unjust, suck it up, and deal with it. But there's a serious... There, the world. There's, a, yeah, there's a serious question of justice here because if you take that position, then you're basically saying you're back, it's an open society, people do what you want, suck it up and get along. Shakespeare's dealing with a serious question of justice here. Fred, go ahead. Fred, is your, I, it looked like your hand was up. Sorry, no, I just forgot to take it down. Go, um, 
there's several passages that I'd like to read, but I want to get to the one that's, I think, touching on this whole question here. Edmund is saying, Thou nature are my goddess. He's saying, Nature without any law, you're my goddess. So basically he's saying, whatever anybody does, so long as they come into the world and they're in the natural world, they can do whatever they want. So he's not holding himself to any standard of law or um, a, a nature supported by law. He's taking the position that he's going to do whatever naturally comes to him. So if it means being a beast, he'll be a beast. It just happens to be the fact that um, the case that he's going to use his intellect in a very cunning way to get what he wants. Um, let's let's go over. You know that he goes to Gonroll, and um, she's dismissive of him. She sends a letter on to Reagan and tells her to do the same. And um, when they meet at um, dismisses of him, you mean Lear? Lear. When they meet at Gloucester's. Um, Lear is um, really upset because um, his, his servant is in um, the stocks and nobody's paying any attention to him. Um, hold on a second, you guys. Hold on a second, I'm trying to... Um, Going over to Act Two, Scene Four. Or actually, go to Act Two, Scene at the end of Act Two, Scene Two, before we go any farther. Um, this this gets to this question about justice and and whether justice is a thing in nature or whether it's artificial, whether it's man-made. This is right at the heart of what Shakespeare is doing. Um, if there is, if there's no such thing, then people can, if we're just born in nature and we can do whatever we want, then ju justice is, should be no concern. People can do whatever they want. But if justice is a part of nature, then men have to take it seriously. It should change the way they act. Okay. Um, Lear comes to Gloucester. He finds Kent in the stock. He's upset because of the treatment he's getting. But just before that, take a look at this. When Kent is put in the stock in Act 2, Scene 2, about line 150 or so, Kent says, Good king that must approve the common saw, thou out of heaven benediction comest to the warm sun. Approach thou beacon to this under globe, that by thy comfortable beams I may pursue this letter. Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. I notice from Cordelia, who has most fortunately been informed of my obscured course, and shall find time from this enormous state seeking to give losses their remedies. She's finding out what's happening. She's gathering forces in France to come to try to remedy an injustice. And even though her father instigated, she wants to come to help him. And um, Kent knows this. All weary and or rotch, take this vantage, heavy eyes. He's in the stocks. He's wanting to protect Lear, and he's been put on the stocks. 
All weary in her watch take vantage heavy eyes, not to behold this shameful lodging. Fortune, good night, smile once more, turn thy wheel. What book did that come from? I should give everybody a test here. Keep Fred out of it. What book did that come from? Those those lines are straight out of a work we read. Wasn't it Boethius? Yeah, what's the truth that he's articulating? Not to behold the shameful light. Fortune, good night. Smile once more. Turn thy wheel. That's straight out of Boethius. What's he saying? Karen, what's he saying? Well, kind of like what goes around comes around. You might have good fortune today, but tomorrow it might be bad fortune. Yeah. Yep. Do you remember Theseus's interpretation of that when we did uh, The Knight's Tale in Chaucer? What Theseus said at the end of that play when Arcite and Palamon did battle and Arcite was going to die. Did die and his words, which is just another rewording of Boethius is um, make a virtue of necessity make a virtue of necessity he's not saying just go along he's not saying what comes around will come around or what goes around will come around it's not being passive it's it's understanding that there is no bad fortune God's at work you have to try to be the best you can while things are not going the way you want. So it's it's not dismissive. It's not saying everybody's doing it. Just go ahead and do it. It's saying when things go bad, you can say everybody does it. He's not saying that. He's saying make a virtue of necessity. He's doing what a, what a virtuous man would do when everything's turning against him. He's not betraying Lear. He is not going to leave Lear. In fact, he's only in there because he's standing up for Lear um, and going against those people who oppose Lear. Simultaneous with that moment, Edgar says, Act 2, Scene 3, I heard myself proclaimed and by the happy hollow of a tree escaped the hunt. There's nothing he can do. The world's against him. The ports are closing down. People are pursuing him. They want to capture him because they think he's a killer. He's a register of patricide he's going to kill his father the country gives me proof and precedent of bedlam beggars all these poor with who with roaring voices striking their numbed and mortified bare arms pins wooden pricks nails sprigs of rosemary and with this horrible object from low farms poor pelting villages sleep coats and mills sometimes with lunatic bands sometimes with prayers enforce their charity Poor Tilligod, poor Turligod, poor Tom, there's something yet. Edgar, I nothing am. So he's identifying himself with all the poor, all the beggars, all the outcasts. He is Edgar no more. Edmund's doing everything he can to step into a stature created by a world, or a status created by a world that values wealth and external things. Edgar's at this point where he has to lose all of that to save himself. So Shakespeare's looking at what happens to people when they define their lives in terms of external things and what happens when those things are taken away. Edmund is one voice of it because he was born into the world and deprived of everything just 
by no act of his own. And he's outraged at the injustice of it because it's not just. Edgar's not being treated justly um, and he's having to put on a disguise. So just at this moment when Kent is in the stock saying, Fortune, good night, smile once more, turn thy wheel. Um, he's going to do everything. He knows Cordelia is gathering forces. He's trying to be as virtuous as he can. That's what he does through the whole play. Edgar is putting on a disguise. Okay, Lear comes to Gloucester's, and it's here that he turns to Reagan. She tells him to give up half of more of what um, um, Goneril told him to get rid of. On, on, in Act 2, Scene 4, Line 250. Um, this is, um, God, this is to me one of the sad preludes to what's about to happen on the Ethan. Act 2, Scene 4. Um, Lear approaches Reagan and says, this is about line 126. Reagan, I think you are. I know what reason I have to think so. If thou should not be glad, I would divorce me from thy mother's room, sepulchering an adulteress. Oh, are you free some other time for that? Beloved Reagan, thy sister's not. Oh, Reagan, she hath tied sharp-toothed unkindness like a vulture. Here, I can scarce speak to her. Thou... Thou it not believe with how depraved a quality. O Reagan, he's turning to her, expecting her to open her arms and receive him as a daughter. And she's going to tell him what um, he heard from Goneril, and it's going to send him into a rage. Um, um, Reagan says, get rid of your train. She has not the provisions in line 196, and out of that provision which shall be needful for your name, I can't do it. Lear returned to her to fifty men dismissed. No, rather, I abjure all ruse and choose to wage against the enmity of the air. To um, a conrad with the wolf and owl, necessity sharp pinch. Return with her, why the hot-blooded France thou dourless took our youngest born. I could as well be brought to kneel his throne and squire like pension beg to keep base life afoot. Return with her, persuade me rather to be a slave and sumpter to this distested groom. Um, so he's going to go back to Reagan now because at least he can have more 50 with her. Line um, 232. Reagan, I dare vouch it. What, 50 followers? Is it not well? What should you need of more? Yea, so many, since that both charge and danger speak against so great a number. How in one house should many people under two commands hold amity? Tis hard, almost impossible. She can't do it. Reagan, why not, my lord? If then they chance to slacky, we could control them. If you will come to me, for now I spy a danger, I entreat you to bring but twenty-five, no more. Veer says to both of them, I gave you this, and this is what you're doing. Then he says to Goneril, I'll go with thee, this is line 250, I'll go with thee, the fifty doth double five and twenty. He's going to go back to her, because at least with her he gets fifty of his men. Goneril, hear my lord, what need you five and twenty, ten, or five, to follow in a house where twice so many have a command to tend you? What need one? 
Why have any? Okay, this is one of the most important preliminary speeches to Lear's going on the heath. What does he mean in what he says here? He is outraged at his daughters. It would be a little bit like a man who is perfectly sane, um, giving up whatever authority he had and going to his daughter and his daughter telling him, you can come here, but you can't bring anything with you. Not anything. No provisions, nothing. And then being outraged at that and going to another daughter and thinking she would take him in and learning that <laughs> he could have half of nothing. I mean, whatever is that's going to, whatever is, however you, whatever would be more insulting. She says, why even one? And then Lear says, this is act two, scene four, line 260 or so. O reason not the need, our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as beast, thou art a lady. If only to go warm were gorgeous, why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man, as full of grief as age, wretched in both, if it'll be you that stirs these daughters' hearts against their father, fool me not so much to bear it tamely, touch me with noble anger, and let not women's weapons, water drops, that is tears, stain my man's cheeks, know you unnatural hags, I will have such revenge on you both, that all the world shall, I will do such things, what they are, yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. You think I'll weep? No, I'll not weep. The storm starts there, and he goes out on the um, on the heath. I, I want to come to those lines in just a second. We've learned at this point that, um, that Albany, so all of this is, it's as if the surface view, the external view of the world was given to us in the first act. And now this underworld, exactly like Dante's hell, is surfacing. Um, Cornwall and Albany are um, about to go to war. The tensions have become so great. We know that Goneril dislikes Albany. She's going to trade him in. Um, she, she, wants to have, um, she wants to have a relationship with Edmund because she thinks he's braver. Because Albany, from the beginning, has tended to sympathize with Lear, even though he goes to war with France. His sympathies are with with Lear. Albany and um, Cornwall are at odds. Odd odds. We know that when Gloucester um, tells Edmund about what's going to happen and he's going to throw his support to Lear, Edmund tells Cornwall and Cornwall and Regan blind Gloucester. So they get rid of Gloucester. Both women are vying for the throne, and what what we're I mean this is sort of. It, it's a universal truth. Can a country be led by two men without their conflict? How do you what? How do you how do you finally decide when there's a difference between you? So you've got all these conflicts and rivalries beginning to surface in what's happening in the play um, between Goneril, her sister, between the two dukes, um, with Gloucester. Um, what is Lear? saying here at this point, oh reason not the need. Um, this is going to take him to the heath. 
And, and it's during this time that we know um, Albany and Cornwall are going at it. France is already landing troops in uh, Dover Beach to try to help Lear recover the throne. So there are all these underlying conflicts. In fact, let me put it, it's, it's wolfish. People are out for themselves, out for power. There's all this greed, all this envy working for power. What Lear did in giving over that authority to his sisters was create a power vacuum and... Daughters. Hmm? Daughters. Daughters. And this is the product of it. So we're watching all of these people now turning on each other for power and authority. Okay? So Shakespeare's unmasking it all. He's taking off the surface. It's like Dante in the Inferno. And we're seeing what happens when you don't, when you misuse your authority and don't rule well, when laws are not used well. So this whole question of law in nature, what's natural and what's unnatural, is um, so much the point. And it's at this point that Lear turns his back on it um, because the wounds are so great. So what does he mean in the speech that I just read? Oh, reason not the need. Our basis beggars are in the poorest thing in superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs. What is he saying? wonderful to watch these two daughters because both of them are using their minds in, in very subtle ways to justify what they're doing to get rid of Lear's retinue, the reasons they have. I mean you're watching people use their intellect when what's motivating them is greed and envy and avarice and a lust for power. What's reason saying? Where are those lines that I just read on necessity? <clears throat> Debbie, what's he saying? Allow, O reason not the need, our basis beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs, man's life is cheap as beasts. Thou art a lady, if only to go warm were gorgeous, why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest which scarcely keeps thee warm. But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. What's this true need? <clears throat> Talk, what's he saying? He needs patience to deal with his daughters. But what's this, oh reason not the need, our basis beggars? Because she, she says, he says, 100, Goneril says 50, Reagan says 25, he goes wants to go back to Goneril. She says, why any? What need one? Reagan's last word, why need any? The reason not the need or basis big. What's he start what's he dealing with? What's the problem here? And what is this? But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man as full of grief as age, wretched in both <clears throat> he curses his daughter. No, you unnatural hags, I will have such revenges. You think I'll weep, I'll not weep. I have full cause of weeping, but this heart shall break. O heir, I'll weep. O fool, I shall go mad. And he leaves. What's... Because 
indeed. Need is not um, need is not the reason for something. Um, but for true need, then what does that mean? Well, true need for him is to have a relationship with his daughters that he can that he can count on in some way. Although, well, anyway. Um, what he's saying is um, true need is that he needs to be able to deal with his daughters, and he can't. Jeannie, what, what do you make of that line? What's going on? What is... What is what's it, it seems to me that he's really... He's saying it's not that, that I need all these nights, this retinue, but I need, I need respect and dignity, and you're not giving me that. You're not respecting me as a, as your father and as the, the former ruler. I should have some, um, some dignity and, and be able to have have a, a cohort to take, you know, to, to be on my side. Yeah. Debbie, go ahead. Did you have something? Well, I, I think when he said, when, when Reagan says what need one, um, you know, his whole life has, he's had these kinds of um, accoutrements around him. He, he's had people around him. If he got on his horse and he went someplace, there would, there would be an entourage with him. And now if it, what they are doing is really humiliating him. They're saying, you have, you're, you're, you're over with, old man. God. You're done. And, and um, all of the accoutrements that you had, you don't need them because you have no value to to us. We're the ones that want the power and have the power, and you gave that to us, and um, and so you you know you're basically old and dumb. Well, I'm so glad. Good words, Tracy. Can you do you have a response to this? I, the reason I'm going to you right now is in light of what you said a few minutes ago about you know this imprint that. Um, Paul would say that every one of us has um, God's law imprinted in our nature, that justice is a real thing and we will all be measured by whatever law we live by and he's calling everybody to live Christ. But, but you're, you're, the way you put it, that um, all of us are imprinted with this to love to be loved, to love and to be loved. And if you've grown up where that's taken away from you, it wouldn't be just, it wouldn't be loving, everything about it would be unnatural. Can you, can you, with that, with your comment in mind and what you're saying, do you have a response to this um, Lear's words here and, and his saying, but for true need, you heavens give me that patience, patience I need? What he's, what, how, how we understand what's going on with Lear at this moment? Okay, I don't know, but my instinct says that he is maybe realizing that he didn't love his daughters the way he should have 
<laughs> and that he expected their love, but it was all about him, you know. But that 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 aside, true need. He's asking for patience in that moment. So I, I mean, maybe to love them despite the fact that they're being, you know, nasty. <laughs> Good. What? No, no, no. What? So. I don't. I don't see him having that much insight, Tracy. Um, I think he's he's still thinking about himself, and I think that that Debbie's description of what his daughters are doing is is really a good one. Right on. And he's been deprived of of his respect from his daughters. His respect due him as an old man. His respect due him as a former ruler. Um, his respect due out of gratitude for all that he's given them, all of that is, all of that is gone, and I don't, I don't think he is thinking about how he made a mistake other than these are evil women. Yeah, Tracy, I think what you're describing is coming. I mean, you're just, I think you're a step early because he he's going to come to that moment exactly the way you put it. I don't think he's there yet either. It's it's interesting for me to read this moment with you guys. Right, just it's interesting what happens in the class for me when we're talking about this thing. As I read this moment, this moment, Shakespeare would have known this. In I mean, he, he knew the Iliad and the Odyssey. He knew it. I mean, he being as bright as he was, he knew these things deeply. This moment reminds me of the moment in the Iliad when Achilles turns on his king and says, "You, you know, you you nothing. You not this. You did this. You." You scum, and he starts to withdraw. He's all he, he's he's responding to the the depth of the injustice of this moment. He went from one daughter to the other, and now to both, and has been slighted by both. So, and the the depth of his injury is in proportion to the nobility he once knew as a king. So, I I think we're meant to feel this is deeper than it would be for a common man, because this was the ruler of a of Britain. So at this point I think it's just pure outrage. I don't think he's realizing anything except that he needs something because he's losing everything. So it's like Achilles. If, remember when Achilles broke? Did he completely understand the implications of what he was doing then in his anger? No he didn't. By the time we get to the ninth book in the Iliad, remember when the embassy comes to bring him, interestingly, wealth, booty, women, all these externals, he says, and it's interesting because Debbie and, and uh, Jeannie both put it in terms of human dignity. Um, the embassy comes and says, have all this stuff, and Achilles says, such things, such things I need not, I need not, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He's coming to understand that there was some dignity greater than that which all the men were killing each other over before. So Lear is moving off a surface. Everything he lived for is being stripped of him because he gave that power, that authority over to his daughters. Now they've got it, and you've got two women fighting each other over it. And he's, he's lost everything. So I don't think he understands yet that he didn't love the right way. He's going he's gonna to come to that shortly. But at this point, he's just outraged, and he says, but for true need, you heavens give me... I don't think he knows quite yet what that is, but clearly, it, I think it's along the lines of what you guys are saying. It's like an existential dignity or 
some worth as a human being that doesn't depend on trappings, externals, wealth, power. Lear gave all that up and, and gave it over to everybody, and now he's suffering because of what everybody's doing with it. Okay, here's my question before we to the last part of the last part of the our time tonight. Go to Act Three. He's on the heath. Kent loves him dearly. Cordelia loves him. Whatever his faults, Tracy, this goes so to your point. Whatever his faults are, these people have not abandoned him. I mean, it, it goes so to your point. Did Christ abandon somebody when, you know, Peter? I mean, Peter, the head of the... By the way, I, I, sh I should have meant, meant to remember that in a prayer. You all know that today was, um, Saint, it was the day of honoring the chair of Peter. Um, it's when Christ asks everybody, who do they say I am? And it's Peter that says, you are the... You know, um, um, Lear has lost everything. <coughs> Sorry, Lear has lost everything. All the, all the externals... Um, several people are still faithful to him. Kent has not wavered his infidelity, neither has Cordelia, even though they've been given reasons to hate him. So even though it's hidden in this pagan world, Shakespeare is showing us a self-sacrificing love. There's no other way to describe that except Christian, even though we're eight centuries before Christ. I hope that's clear to everybody. The central question is justice for Edmund, for Lear, for everybody. But some love is at work here. We're catching glimpses of it. But at this point, we're watching a man who was once king lose everything, and uh, uh, Debbie's word was right, uh, humiliated by his daughters, by their complete inability to relate to him on a level of human dignity. Okay. Here's Lear and Heath, Act 3, Scene 2. Blow wind. So, just when Lear says, oh, reason not the need, and he, and he says, you think I'll weep? No, I'll not weep. We start hearing a storm. A storm. So he's leaving. He has nothing, no protection, no roof, nothing with him. All he's got is what he's wearing. No retinue, no palace, no comfort, no security, no guards. He's stripped of everything. He's going out on the heat, and we're watching a man dealing now with necessity. He's at a level of necessity. He has nothing to help him. Okay, And a storm comes up. So we've got to ask what this storm means. But here he says, blow winds and crack you cheeks, rage blow you cataracts and hurricanes, spout till you have drenched our steeples, drown the cocks. You'll suffer us and thought executing fires, vaunt couriers of oak cleaving thunderbolts, singe my white head and thou, all shaking thunder, strike flat the thick rotundity of the world, crack nature's molds, all germanes spilled at once, that makes ingrateful man. Um, the fool is with him watching this and is horrified. Um, Kent comes. Lear says, I will be a pattern of all patience. I will say nothing. Kent, who's there? Mary, there's a grace and a codpiece. That's a wise man and a fool. Um, Kent discovers him, and he looks at, at Lear and says, line 40, man's nature cannot carry the afflictions nor the fear. I, I said this before. I, I, I don't think I've ever felt this until this reading of it, but 
It's hard for me to read this now without thinking of Adam and Eve and the ingratitude in the fall as one of the basic things that was a part of the disobedience. Lear says, let the great gods that keep this dreadful putter over our heads find out their enemies now. Tremble, thou wretch, thou hast within thee undivulged crimes, unwhipped of justice. Hide thee, thou bloody hand, thou perjured, and thou similar of virtue, that art incestuous, caitiff, to pieces shake, that under covert and convenient seeming has practiced on man's life. Close pent-up guilts, Reeve your concealing continence and cry these dreadful summoners grace. I am a man more sinned against than sinning. Okay, let's get this out of the way. Is he a man more sinned against than sinning at this point? Tracy. Come on. What's... <laughs> I don't know. Probably deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> Make that bold, can you? Just come out. Make that just well, a. It's just been. It sounds like. I mean, we don't know his life up until then, but just all the uh, hints. I can't think of the better word. Hints are that he has been selfish, self-absorbed. Can we just get a flat declarative statement? Is he a man more sinned against than sinning or not? No, because he. Throughout his one daughter who actually loves him. Yeah. So describe so describe Lear at this point. Characterize Lear at this point. Deluded. <laughs> Fred, go ahead. How do you characterize Lear here? I don't I don't know if he's smart enough yet to realize that he's sinned more than he's been sinned against. But I I think to me he's he's close. And I think part of the the, the symbolism of the storm is, you know, it, it, it finally, you know, is getting him close to the point where he's he's going to realize that, you know, maybe he is more sinner than sinned against, but I don't think he's there yet. Yeah. I yeah. think he definitely is. Yeah. Yeah, he thinks, or he wouldn't say, I'm, a more, I'm, sinned, I'm more sinned against than sinning. Anybody else have a response to this, or Lear at this point? Take a look at that language, because it's really profound. Blow winds, crack your cheeks, rage blow, and thou all shaking thunder, strike flat the thick rotundity of the world, crack nature's molds, all germane spilt at once, do you know what, what's he mean nature's molds, all germane, spill at once, that makes ingrateful man? What's he, God, I don't even know how to ask the question. What, what do those words bring into, call to mind? What's going on in his mind that he would use those words? What's he referring to? Crack nature's molds, all germane, spill at once. That makes ingrateful man. Carl, do you have a thought? Yeah, 
it may be that he's in a great pout right now and feels wronged, but I think he's talking about creation, isn't he? Go with that. Where you can you flesh that out? What? Read read it again. About it's it's act it's the opening of Act Three, Scene Two, opening lines. Very first words, and all thou shaking thunder, strike flat the thunder tendency of the world, crack nature's mold, all germane spilled at once that makes ingrateful man. I think it's the beginning, the creation of time, the creation of everything that he's harkening back to. Relate this to this moment, can you? That's I mean that sounds on the surface like I really think you're close to something, but I'm not sure that it Without connecting it, it just seems outrageous. I, I think he's getting ready to restart and figure out what's really happened. Tracy, go! Don't don't come on! Don't don't raise your hand. Just he says. So I think he's saying um, it's like all of the wealth and like. All of the, it's like you just said, you live in the in a very affluent uh, area. So all of that goodness and wealth and easiness makes you um, ungrateful, ingrateful. And so the thunder is, you know, striking that flat, like take it, stripping you away. He's being stripped away of all of those comforts and things, rotundities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. St. Augustine had this theory. Go ahead, Fred. I, to me, when, when I read it, it, it feels to me more like the fall than anything else. You know, like how Adam and Eve might have felt as, as they were being led out of Eden. That, you know, that there, there was a, a great ungratefulness there. And, you know, when I... It may not be what it is, but when I read that, that's the image that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. St. Augustine had this theory to because he, he was very Platonic in his thinking, not Aristotelian. And if you remember, Plato said that um, all things, beds, trees, humans, all have their origins in the forms. That's why all trees could share bed, or all treeness, or all beds could share bedness. You know, there had to be an essence. And he posited them as ideas. He said it's those are the source of all, they're the forms from which all things come. St. Augustine could make no sense of that unless he placed them in God. So he called them God's, the ideas in God's mind. So they're the templates for all created things. Is that clear? All things had their source in God. So their templates had to be there. Those things were called seminal ideas, seminal from seed, like a semen. They were the source of all living things, the germanes, the source. So in some sense, he's, he's talking about something metaphysical that's breaking apart. So it's hard for me to read it, Carl, without thinking exactly along those lines, that in some sense, we're going back to a metaphysical sense of creation and Fred, I, I think to the fall. Um, let me give another moment because I think what's happening right now is extraordinary and it won't, there's no way to see it without the storm. If an ordinary man just a, didn't have the nobility of <clears throat> Lear got really ticked off at his daughters 
because he was humiliated? You know what they did to him? Imagine the words. Can you imagine any ordinary man using the words that Lear's using? And one, it's like what Shakespeare did with language with Othello. Remember, Othello was rude of speech. He couldn't speak those lines. We were talking about it's only through that poetry that we can begin to get to the depths of those things that most of us don't reach. When, when you're wounded spiritually in your soul, to, to imagine Christ on a cross or you know, in front of Herod or Pilate, um, imagine how those wounds go, how deep. Can you find words to express the spiritual depth of that pain, or in this case, that disorder? Now, to, to help with the parallel here, remember, remember when we did the Iliad and Achilles returned to the war. Remember, he's, he's the only one who said, I let everybody down. He goes back and accepts his death. It's when he does that that he goes back into the war that nobody can touch him. So that's a, that's a spiritual conversion. That's a moment of turning. When he goes back into the war, all the gods return, and Homer describes it as a psychomachia. The underworld uncovers. Gods are everywhere. The gods do battle. It's, it's like a crack in being or creation. The spiritual depth of it is that great. I think what's happening now is happening to Lear, personally. Um, I think Carl's use of creation is so... How do you put... He's got to begin again. It's, it's like the moles, the, the very germanes are being cracked it's not just getting off of surfaces, it's finding out who you are in your know, spiritual, metaphysical depths. Um, he's, 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 not, he's still full of self-pity because he says, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. That's not true. He's, he's caught in his self-pity for sure, but he's beginning to see something and feel something that, that shows his world is cracking. It's like Achilles going into battle and all the, all the gods. So what's happening right now is that Achilles is changing. Sorry, Lear is changing. He's been stripped of everything. Who is he? When you take away all the things that you, make you comfortable, when God says, give up everything, go to a cross, you know, think about St. Francis giving up everything or any of the saints. When you give up all those things with which you've identified yourself in the social world, who are you? Who is who is there? You know? And the pain of suddenly facing, I mean, I mean imagine hearing the news that you lost $200,000 in bitcoins. <laughs> Something, you know. Or $200,000 in real cash in your bank. How would you feel? Now, make it not 200000 in your bank account. Make it everything. Make it everything where you had to give up everything. So going to the Heath is Lear's confronting himself at a level of necessity. Who is he? When you go to those germanes, those seminal things, you're going to the origins of things. Okay? Now, here's my question. Because I don't think it's just Lear. Because what Lear's going to meet on the Heath is a new community. And it's a community outside everything that he knew. When he gets to the hovel, Kent's with him, and the fool is there. 
and the storm was going on, both, both of those men want to get Lear out of the cold. They love this man. He's an old man. They want him protected. Lear will have nothing to do with him. He's, he, his world is falling apart. And Kent says, come in. The fool says, come in. Lear, this is Act 3, Scene 4, very beginning, or 20, line 26. Kent, good my lord, good my lord, enter here. Lear, prithee, go in thyself, seek thine own ease. This tempest will not give me leave to ponder on things would hurt me more. But I'll go in. In boy, he says to the fool, in boy, go first. You houseless poverty, nay, get they in. I'll pray and then I'll sleep. He's not going in. But it's the first time, I mean, I, it's, it's, I mean it's in terms of the play, it's the first time that he's ever looked out for somebody beneath him. So all the comfort, all the selfishness, all the looking out for himself, stripped away. The pain, the anguish is, can only be expressed in his words and the storm. It's a world change. So here's the question I want to leave everybody with here at the end. Or anybody want to take it up right now, we can. He's, he's, he's lost everything. He's out on the heath. He's outside that world. He's with poor Tom a fool. Who's a beggar? I mean, he's in in you know in disguise. He's with the beggars. He's with those who were ignored in his reign, in his power and comfort. All he did was look after himself. Now he's in their world. He's facing necessity, and his first gesture to them is, "No, you go in, in boy, go first. You, you houseless poverty, nay, get you in. I'll pray, and then I'll sleep. Poor naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are." that by the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your hooped and widowed rage, raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I have taken too little care of this. Take physic, pomp, pomp, circumstance, your royalty. Take physic, pomp, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayest shake the superflux to them, and show the heavens what more just. So I'm going to make this claim. I mean, you're, anybody's welcome to disagree here, but it seems to me what's happening right now is a new community is forming, and it's much closer along the lines of what Tracy was saying a while ago. Lear is realizing I, he didn't take care. He said, poor wretches, I took little, too little care. <clears throat> What's this community going to be formed of? It's not people running away. It's not people hiding. It's not people vying for power. It's not Reagan and Goneril. It's not Edmund. It's going to be Edgar, outcast. Kent, outcast. The fool, who <laughs> by nature is sort of on the boundaries. What's happening in this community? And what we'll discover is it's only the beginning of pain, something really painful, because when he gets to Dover, we're going to have the closest thing to a crucifixion, as I know of in literature. He says he's on a wheel of fire. The pain is so great. Because from this point to the middle of Act 5, Lear's going to go almost mad. Gloucester's going to go almost mad. And we're going to get a new understanding of reason because he says, oh, reason, not the madness. 
There's a reason in madness. So madness can be you're outside the norms of society because you're insane. You, I mean, you really are disordered. Madness can also mean you don't see things the way the social world does. They think you're mad when, as a matter of fact, you're the one that sees things. The fool, Lear at the end. Um, um, in uh, Agamemnon, Cassandra, remember the madness. It's the prophets who are mad because they don't see things the way the world does. So the whole world here in the heath is going to be turned upside down spiritually. Shakespeare is going to go to the depths of things to find out who is man? Who is Lear when you take everything away? Who is man when we lose everything? Christ went, this is God. Shakespeare had him in the center of his soul. Christ went to the cross with nothing on. He had no armies. You know, one of the temptations of the desert was throw yourself off, all your angels will come get you. Christ went to the cross naked, bare. So here in the heath, we're getting man stripped of everything, um, and it what it does is open up different windows on the way we look at the world and ourselves. So my question that I'd like to start with next time is, when you put it, let's if we could focus on Act three and four, and maybe if we get to five, but at least three and four. What what do we experience in the heath? What do we what happens at the heath? We know that Cordelia is coming. We know that Cornwall and, and Albany are at odds. Cornwall is going to be killed by a servant. Um, Reagan's going to turn on, um, on uh, or I mean, she's going to, Gonro's going to turn on Reagan and, and make a play for Edmund. Do I get that right? Um, Sorry. <laughs> anyway, all these machinations, these political machinations are going on. And here in this hovel in the heath, something strange is happening. And the, one of the centerpieces of that heath scene is Lear putting his daughters on trial. There's going to be a mock trial, a play within a play. So lots, of, lots is happening in this community. Um, it's outside the world. A play is being put on. What is Shakespeare saying about art? What should art do? If justice is a real concern, um, are human beings really living justice the way they should? If a king in, in Shakespeare's time was watching this play, was there something for him to learn? If a father had been watching this play, would there have been something for him to learn as a father? So there's lots of really profound things going on in this play. But my, the question I'd like to start with is, if we put all the events that take place in this heath together, what do we come up with? What, what kind of a community is forming there? What does it say about justice and love, which are the real concerns of this play? Anybody want to take that on right now or raise any questions or offer any thoughts or comments? Fred, yes. Well, it just seems to me like the heath is that, that world that exists, if you go back to Boethius, when all the trappings of men, whether it's power or wealth, oh, yeah, yes. you know, whatever it is, yeah. is completely stripped away. Yeah, yeah. And 
you're, it, it's kind of like in Dante, it's the bottom. And you're now, you know, you, you, you're suffering to the extent that you're now ready <laughs> to, to begin the renewal. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It hasn't happened yet, but I think what, what, what you look at in, in, in the heath is, is that community that has gone through that process and is, it is positioned for the renewal. Tracy, you look really thoughtful. Go, come on! Now I know. Come on! What's on? Go well, ahead. I read. I've read the whole thing. <laughs> but again, it's like I told you. They're just words strung together, and still, I don't. Still, I understand the plot, but I don't get these nuances. Yeah. So what happened on the heath? Bunch of. Stuff I don't know. I don't understand. Crazy, like crazy stuff. <laughs> Isn't that why we're meeting? I mean, I'm, I'm eager to get together to find out what happens on the meet or on the heath. Nobody, Jeannie, Carl. By the way, just so you know, I mean, I, I, I King Lear, I, I think is Shakespeare's most painful pay, play, and. Um, I mean, he went on to write other plays after this, so it, you know, it, it's not that the end of his Pericles and Winter's Tale, I think, are are the most sacramental plays. But in terms of human spiritual anguish, I, I don't think there's another play that compares. And I think because he's going to those essential things, I, I think what Fred just said was a good way. You know, Boethius, did he face this kind of a moment in his jail cell? When he, when he had to stop whining and Know, and lose everything. It's not. It, this is painful. You know, we don't. We don't get a sense that Boethius went through a lot here. Um, we get. We get the experience of a man who's humiliated by his own children. Um, we get. Um, we get a father being used by his son. Um, he's going to be blinded. Um, so. We're actually taking through very painful experiences involving parents and children. So Shakespeare is going to the depths of those things most important to us: our family ties. One of the painful beauties about this play is, on the surface, what Lear does in the beginning doesn't seem in proportion to everything that happens, and yet it is in that abuse of power, everything that's going to happen is going to show Lear what he didn't do when he was, before he passed on his inheritance, you know, before he turned over the kingdom to his daughters. So it's a very gradual unmasking, and it's going to spiritual depths um, in, in the nobility of a, of a soul, and we're allowed to share in the depths of that because of the nobility. Um, so it's a to me it's a it's a very profound spiritual play. It, it deals with pain in a way Dante didn't and Boethius didn't. Even though, even though the philosophic groundwork was laid in Boethius, and even though Dante gives us a concrete experience of it, it's this is a, a man I think almost all human beings can identify with. Parents do foolish things. All of us do. Um, parents suffer from their kids. It's a in in one sense it's about the foolishness of parents, and in another sense it's about the ingratitude of kids. In a more myth myth a more mythic sense, it's about our fall. 
I mean, it goes back to our disobedience and the ingratitude in the fall with our Father. So the spiritual dimensions of this play, to me, are, are extraordinary. Um, Julie, be good to hear from you. Go ahead. You've got your hand. Yeah, I'd just like to say this is bringing up all kind of issues for me. I mean, you start to look at yourself with this, and you start <laughs> thinking, oh, you're if your soul's laid bare, <laughs> I know. Um, you know, it starts getting kind of uncomfortable a little bit. But good. It's a good thing. Good. It's a good thing. It's Lent, right? It's Lent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you said that, Julie, because I think it's true. If it doesn't, I think there's something wrong with us. I mean, it's what you can't read a Shakespeare play without going into the interior, and we're we're going into real depths of the interior here. So, but just just know this. Well, it's a tragedy. But you know my reading of tragedy, all, all tragedy ends in a recovery of good. An evil, an evil, a wrong, a disorder is faced. So all of this is uncovering something, and it's going to be answered. That's Shakespeare's greatness. He didn't turn away from looking at bad things. He had the courage to expose them, draw us into them so we could identify them, see ourselves more clearly, just the way Dante does. I think more painfully than Dante does. But then have them answered. All of these things will be answered. Will the cost of them be small? No, not at all. Um, but but I think you're absolutely right, Julie. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, Bob, I, I think it's much more painful than Dante for me. Yeah. Um, it is. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's so much more immediate, concretely involving Dante's got an ele an element of allegory that's you know I mean we get these things so briefly here we're allowed to go into depths and watch family struggles unfold and um, so Tracy go ahead okay any last comments before we wonderful play let's let's tackle the Heath what kind of community is being formed outside of this court world where all these intrigues are going on, these palace intrigues? What's going on here um, in this community, and why is it important for this play? Okay, Okay. Um, if you would all keep each other in prayers, please keep all of us, keep Suzanne and me and her family, and we will keep you. And And I'm so glad what Julie said, if, if, if for no other... If, in no other spirit, read this in a spirit of Lent. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good, I hadn't thought, but, but it's a good Lenten play. Okay, bless you guys. See, see you next week.